Starting today, for the next several weeks, I'm going to do a mini-series with the Unbeatable Podcast. I'm going to interview a handful of friends and warriors that I highly respect who were with me in Somalia and who I believe there are parts of their story that should be in the book and the movie Black Hawk Down instead of my story. And to kick this whole thing off, on today's episode, I get a chance to sit down and to catch up with a friend of mine, Matt Eversman. You're just going to hear us having some fun and getting real about what happened in Somalia and all of the attention after Somalia. Can't wait for you to hear from my friend, Matt Eversman, starting this special mini-series on the Unbeatable Podcast. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Before we get into the episode with Matt, can I remind you that I wouldn't be able to do this episode today if it wasn't for our, our friends at the Solomon Foundation? Look, if you don't know anything about these guys and gals, they are committed to helping the local church grow. And they do that by helping people get an excellent return while making an eternal impact with their money. You want to know more about them? Just check them out at thesolomonfoundation.org. Now I get a chance to talk to a friend on this episode with Matt Eversman. Hey, Matt, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to catch up with me on this episode of Unbeatable. Well, Jeff, thank you. And I mean, we could go like heckle and jackal all morning. It's like, how are you today? Yes, we should do that. We totally should. As we were saying, I mean, I think the last time we were together was up at West Point, you know, uh, a year ago. And uh, yeah, man, time flies, but awesome to be with you. And thank you for having me. Yeah. And by the way, thank you for continuing to send people my information when they're looking to have you on stage, but you're so busy, you can't make it. So you're like, hey, why don't you get the number two player? Why don't you ask Jeff to show up on stage? No, nah, man, I'm just messing with you. No good deed goes unpunished, man. None. Zero. That's right. Yes. Um, I'll tell everybody in just a little bit how much I respect you as a warrior and how impressed I was about you on the streets of Mogadishu. That's really what we're going to focus on today. But Matt, thank you for kicking off this little mini series in this podcast. The five episodes that I'm going to do, starting with you, these are stories that I really, really wish the book and the movie Black Hawk Down would have highlighted and would have spent more time on, but they didn't get the attention that they deserve. And yours is one of those stories. So I'm really telling, I'm calling these five episodes. I wish this stuff made it into the book and the movie instead of my stuff that made it into the book and the movie. That's how impressed I am with some of these stories. So thanks for kicking this whole mini series off with me, buddy. Well, you're, uh, again, you're kind, Jeff, to to include me. And, uh, you know, we we, we we can dispense with all the uh, the usual batter and everybody knows as we're chatting and we use first person pronouns, we really are talking about, you know, teams and teammates and, and our yes. Rangers. So yeah, man, I'm, 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 I, I think it's, uh, it's hard to imagine 30 years ago. In fact, 30 years ago today, if I recall, might've been our first engagement um, I know we got there yeah. 30 years ago Sunday, and I think it was two days. I I, I haven't found my notes, but I think it, it, today or tomorrow was like, I think for me, the first firefight on that first mission. I think. Are you saying that the first firefight that you ever got in in your life was in Somalia? Yeah, it's, it's shocking. I didn't know. Look at man, me and you have known each other for 35 years. I didn't know that about you. Yeah, no, that, was I, my, that was my first experience in, in, in combat. That, that was it. So I uh, uh, sort of, you know, put the, the bee in baptism by fire. But um, yeah, like so much, so much that came out of that fight to this day. It's, it's, it boggles my mind. You were a Ranger squad leader back in 1993. And um, what I watched you do leading at a level above your position, above your pay grade, and let's just tell everybody right out of the gate, above your paycheck. <laughs> so um, the way that I watched you lead, I would have never known, had you not said that just now, I would have never known this was your first firefight. Well, you know, let's tell you, Jeff, candidly, as I said before, you know, when you look at that 
collection of men, you know, because at the time it was all male force, um, at any at any uh, unit on that formation, you know, I, I don't want to say like, oh, it was so easy and I'm so good, but it really was a lot easier than you would think when you yeah. have that caliber of young oh, man. men, you know? Totally agree. Um, I tell audiences, and I think they don't really get how significant this was. I tell them, by the time I got to Somalia, like you, we're squad leaders together, same company. Um, but I have already gone to the invasion of Panama with the Ranger Regiment, already gone to Desert Storm with 1st Ranger Battalion. I was in firefights in both of them, in multiple firefights in Panama, and in one firefight in uh, Desert Storm. So when I got to Somalia... This wasn't my first firefight, but Matt, I'll never forget the night that we showed up and got off of that ginormous C-5 transport plane and occupied the hangar on the airfield. The very night that we got off the airplane, we got greeted by mortar fire that landed across the or landed on the roof of the operations cell uh, center. And I looked at my men and I said, well, finally, America's found an enemy that's ready to fight and bleed and die for what they believe in. And I had no idea how right I was going to be about that one. Um, listen, and again, there's so much to jump on from that. But I've told people a million times, again, if, we, if we're talking about firsts in our experiences, you know, that night, you know, I've never again had mortar fire, you know, land anywhere close to me, thankfully. And I remember, they, they, you know, people cheering. Like literally, people were cheering, and I'm looking at this aluminum roof. <laughs> they were applauding the fact that we're getting shot at. I, yes, I, I, you know, I'm telling the truth, Jeff. But if you're just yes, of course, I, I, I promise you, it was it was the most ironic thing because I'm trying to be as brave as I can, and I'm looking at this aluminum roof, thinking that's not going to stop a mortar or any mortar. And there are young, <laughs> you know, there are young men literally applauding this, and it was the it was yeah. Again, it was there's surreal. a fine line sometimes, but it, 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 this was a group that was not afraid to get, I'm talking about the Americans, yeah. not afraid to get in a fight. And um, boy, we yeah. did it. And we strapped it on and got, well, immediately went to the walls to try to figure out where this mortar round came from. Eventually strapped it on and went patrolling through the city in the middle of the night trying to find that mortar tube. Um Man, I haven't thought about that roof, the hangar roof in 30 years. Thanks for bringing me down memory lane, Matt. Um, I remember we got mortared. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I remember we got mortared every single night, like clockwork. I actually got to the point where I set my watch and I knew in 30 minutes we're going to start getting mortared because they the warlords distributed the drugs, this little, uh, you know, African drug that they would use to build up their courage. And then they would go get scrappy and decide to launch a few mortars at us on the airfield. And I remember looking up at that aluminum roof in the hangar thinking, if a mortar hits this roof, the mortar explodes, it turns into flaming hot shrapnel. And now you've got a hundred pieces of flaming hot shrapnel and thousands of pieces of aluminum roof flying down on top of us. All it takes is for a mortar to hit the roof. And most of us are gonna get wounded with one rock, with one shot. Yeah, and, and you know, Jeff, and, and listen, th this all kind of falls into the things I learned later on, you know, in my career in the history of Somalia and Mogadishu. But you think, here we are sitting at the airfield, you know, 100 yards in from, uh, you know, the Indian Ocean. I don't know that That's the right. Somalis could put a mortar round into the ocean, let alone the biggest building on on the coast, you know. And so for night after night, that, that happens. And, you know, when's the one time they get... They get it right, you know, it's right after October 3rd, which is just, uh, you know, yeah. a story for later. But it, it was amazing. Like, uh, not that I recall. I don't I don't know that they had uh, landed on anything. I don't think they had any. Uh, they certainly didn't have any wounded, as I remember. And I don't think any aircraft. And, uh, you know, so much for their, 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 their mortar systems. But uh, crazy. Absolutely crazy. Yeah. I I uh, I remember thinking to myself, it's we're we're several weeks into Somalia. It's the evening; things are starting to wind down. I'm looking at my watch, and I'm thinking, in 30 minutes, we're going to get mortared. But I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom right now because if I don't go across the tarmac into those little porta potties across the street, go to the bathroom right now and make my way back to the hangar, I'm going to end up in a porter potty when a mortar lands on top of my head. And it's not the shrapnel so much. It's all of the 
garbage, the human refuge in the porta potty that I don't want to get covered with. I got to go right now before the mortar starts falling. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. You know, it's some things never change. Just a little walk down, just the good things about, you know, just the good stuff about Somalia. Yeah. Yeah. Man. Um, Hey, the reason why I asked you, there are dozens of guys that I saw on the streets of Mogadishu that I really wish the camera would have captured and it would have made it into the movie Black Hawk Down. But the movie would be 14 hours or 18 hours long and nobody in the audience would be able to stomach what we saw. The reason I wanted to interview you, Matt, is because I watched you lead at a level that you weren't trained, you weren't. Um, practiced at, but like any good ranger, you were ready to do whatever was needed of you. So let's talk about what happens to your platoon sergeant right before the the battle, right before uh, we go out after these two guys on October 3rd. Yeah. So, you know, just a, a little, the quick backstory, uh, again, people, if you're listening, the movie, it's a good movie, all that stuff, but you got to Kind of got to forget a little bit of it if you're listening to this conversation, because uh, I worked for one of the greatest rangers, you know, most iconic rangers of, of you know, the, the, the modern era. His name Chris Hardy. He was Sergeant First Class at the time. Was our platoon sergeant. You know him well, Jeff. He went on to become the regimental sergeant major. Uh, probably should have been sergeant major of the Army. I mean, he's that good. And and Chris Hardy, you know, Chris Hardy, uh, you know, if you say ran a tight ship, that's, that, that sort of sounds a little, um, you know, Captain Bly kind of thing. But no, Chris was just a great leader. And the whole lead up, I, why I say that about him is that we got to Mogadishu and we had done five, I think six missions prior to October 3rd, of which Chris was the chalk leader of chalk four. And I was his, his sort of APL or two IC, you know, of the helicopter. And uh, so all I had to do was listen to him, follow his guidance, and and off we would go. And he he was the twenty five pound brain on the ground, and so following him was not a hard hard thing to do. And and I like to think that maybe a little bit of it rubbed off because you know what happens. Unfortunately, uh, you know Chris gets called home uh, sometime in the end of September on a Red Cross emergency, which is a protocol, as you know. You know somebody, uh, I, I believe it was his mother. Um, but, you know, so he, he had to leave. And uh, I've said this to people before, sort of jokingly, you know, the movie makes this this coronation of Sergeant Eversman to be a really, you know, big deal when, you know, we, we do it all the time in training. You know, this fallout run drill, you, you know, without even missing a beat, without even missing a beat. And uh, I just recall it, it really did dawn on me um, once... I realized that I was in charge was that, and this is sort of, you know, no, no, no earth shattering story, but I realized like, you know, now any decision that I make on any mission, you know, it's mine, you know, it's not Sergeant Hardy, it's not me affecting someone else's life, it's mine. And, and those decisions, even the right ones could have a consequence, you know, in combat. And that was really, I remember that was something I had to stew on for, for a long time in the hangar that night, kind of contemplating what, you know, what it really means to be in charge in combat. I mean, that's, that's the exam we all hope we pass, you know? Matt, I've got a story in just a second for you. That's exactly what you're describing. And it happens to me in the Humvees. And I realize everything that I say yes or no to is probably going to cost somebody their life tonight. And I want to get this right. Yep. I can't I can't stop what the enemy does. I can't change what the enemy does, but I want to make sure that I get what I do right. Um, you just said three or four things that I want to point out to the listener. Well, first, I want to point out that in the Ranger Regiment, it's what an incredible privilege to serve with the guys like Chris Hardy. And Chris, if you're listening to this, I believe I, I agree with every word that Matt has said about you. Yep. Second, the fact that this unit incredibly small unit with this highly strategic mean, mission, which means every single guy on the battlefield has a really, really important role to play. But when something happens at home, the fact that this unit would be willing to send a high level leader like Chris Hardy home to be with your family and let Matt step into his shoes, that doesn't happen in a lot of military organizations 
anywhere on the planet. What a privilege to work with people that trust you like that and will take care of families. But third, Matt, you just described this perfectly. What we were trained in the Ranger Regiment, literally every mission, I can't think of a training operation that I did in my entire career in the Ranger Regiment that didn't include some form of what you just described as the Fallout 1 drill. Yeah. I know people don't know, the listeners don't know what the Fallout 1 drill is. So would you explain the Fallout 1 drill in training and how that prepared you for the Fallout 1 drill for real in Somalia? Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing as I look back now, you know, when you get into the business world, you know, in the civilian professional world, it's nothing more, it's the succession plan. You know, it's following the, the hierarchy, except, you, you know, everybody has to step up and, you know, we... We joke that we're always one flat tire away from failure out here, but you right. know, the battlefield, it, it could be any number of things. And and very realistically, you know, which I, I just uh, not to be too tangential on this fallout one thing, Jeff, but you you know, in in training, you realize, you know, the, most of the time, you know, you you dust yourself off at the end of the day, you pick it up, they're like, hey, you know, Struker, you're out, it's, you know, Matt step in or whomever, and, and you do it and you take your lumps and you learn by doing and all that kind of good stuff. Right. But, you know, you don't really realize that, at least I didn't. I mean, you can hear it logically, but I don't know that the real gravity of it is that, you know, leaders die on the battlefield just like anybody else does, you know? And That's right. We, we, a force like this, a small, nimble ranger force, um, you know, is able to, to, to keep to keep churning because we we drilled this in we take you right at the more, most inconvenient moment take the leader out of the equation yep. and let yep. somebody hey you you're in charge now and um, man it is uh, you talk about stress you know when regimental commander you know when a when a battalion commander or whomever is watching and all of a sudden you know you the spotlights on you and and you got to shine you got to perform and that's what this unit. Yeah. And so it, it requires a lot. And I don't mean that to pat myself on the back. We all did it. You know, we, we all did it. But it's a, it's a great exercise that pays off great dividends on the battlefield. That's for sure. Matt, I remember my first couple of years in the Ranger Regiment when I was still a private, they would kill off a leader and they put Private Struker in his role and said, all right, Struker, what are you going to do? I'm just a private. I'm supposed to follow orders, not give orders. But this unit drilled it every single training mission. And no wonder when this thing happens for real and Chris Hardy is removed from the equation, Matt is able to step in and to fill a huge hole. And Matt, you did it with excellence, Matt. You did it very, very well. Well, you, you again, you flatter me. Uh, the other the, the, there are plenty of mistakes, you know, I made plenty of mistakes and, you know, we, we all not just trying to be coy about self-deprecating review. Like there are a lot of dumb things I did that I, I hope didn't get anybody hurt. I don't think so. But if you had a do over, you would be like, man, I'm going to, you know, next time this happens, yeah. you know, do X. But uh, as I said, before we started taping though, Jeff, you, you know, the, this, the caliber of, of men in this force, they come, the whole force. Uh, you, you know, I'd go back to any fight. I'd go down any dark alley with any of them any day. You know, enjoy Sunday. But it, you know, there, there, there's a there was an atmosphere of 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 I thought just just great positive energy moving towards success. With if you're listening, you would probably say, of course there was. But that's taken it to a whole other level. That caliber of kid men that were there. It. Uh, it's almost indescribable, to be honest, without, again, just giving platitudes out for the sake of it. People, I think, would start to be like, okay, I don't believe you anymore. Yeah. I'll say this to you, Matt. I watched leaders on the battlefield and they impressed me. But I have said for the last 30 years, what I saw from the skill level one guy, what I saw from the Ranger private, I will never forget for the rest of my life. Man the courage and the tenacity and the willingness to go again and again and again. Holy smokes. It, it, it's mind blowing. I, re I remember Jeff having a chat with, with Tom DiDomaso, who was my platoon leader in, uh, in the uh -huh. hangar prior to October 3rd. And, uh, you know, he brought out the, the SLA Marshall 
quote, and and he very earnestly said, you know, I, I wonder if it's true, you know, that only you know twenty percent of of the force will 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 return fire. Will do eighty percent of the fighting. Yeah. You no, know, I'm like, come on. He's like, no, you know, this this is like this is data driven kind of evidence. And uh, I remember afterwards telling people, I'm like, had Todd Blackburn not fallen from that aircraft, we would have had hundred percent. You know, yeah. people return yeah. fire immediately. Yeah. Like a hundred percent, like that yeah. 25%. How could you even think about that? Like, this is one of those, yeah, we blew that thing out of the water. And again, I don't mean that beat in my chest, but you know, we had young men that, that, that went from safe to semi, you know, in seconds on a really short runway. Well, thank you for mentioning Blackburn. Cause this is the point that I want to tell people about. Um, I show up with the Humvees right about the time that you guys are getting off of the ropes and starting to establish the blocking positions. But we're about a half a block away from you and the wait and, and the plan is to wait for the call. The building is secure. The blocking positions collapse to the vehicles. Everybody gets on the vehicles and we roll out of there. That's the plan. But I get a call. I haven't even got to our staging position with the vehicles for th two minutes when I get a call from our battalion commander, Colonel Danny McKnight, that we've got a seriously wounded ranger. Don't know who he is. Don't know where he is. Go up and link up with Captain Steele, and he will tell you where to go to go get this wounded ranger and take him back to our surgeon. So I want to point out the fact that I had a little bit of experience at this point that I don't think the average guy from our company had. I get up to black, or I mean, I get up to Mike Steele's position and I'm trying to figure out exactly where you are because I don't know where your blocking position is. And he has an oper a radio operator right next to him. Rounds are coming over our head, but they're 10, 15 feet over our head. And every time that a bullet, an AK-47 bullet goes over the top of our head, his radio operator starts to duck. And I said to him, listen, man, two things. One, that bullet is far enough over your head that you don't have to duck. You can listen. And when it gets close enough, there's a very distinctive time or there's a very distinctive sound. You'll know when it's time to bury your face in the ground. But number two, can I just tell you that if you're ducking, it's already too late. The, the bullet would have, already, if it was going to hit you, it would have already hit you before you had a chance to duck. So there's really no need to duck. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's just uh, because of being shot at by AK-47s plenty of times before this, I knew exactly what it sounds like. So I had I had a little bit of advantage. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, it becomes it can become an emotional event very quickly, you know, and uh, yeah. said, you know, when you like, hey, you know, there's this sound of gunfire and you're like, ah, you know, it's it's kind of close. And then there's this sixth sense like man, somebody's got me in their sights, you know, like somebody's yes, right. lo literally yep. looking through their, over their front sight post, you know, at me and thank the good Lord missing. But, uh, you know, that sort of changes, uh, that changes the complexion in, in, in a hurry. But anyway, I interrupted you that, you know. No, I'm it's okay. Um, so Mike Steele sends me up to your blocking position. I have to make my way through Sean, um, uh, Sean's blocking position just to get up to you. And uh, I have to fight my way through his blocking position. When I get to you, Matt, what I saw, I don't think the movie does you justice, man. I'm watching you. I'm watching your blocking position. Hold off the enemy. Secure your corner of the building. Treat Todd Blackburn and doing it all in the middle of the intersect. Well, you know, with as much cover as you can possibly get all at the same time. And I'm watching you personally lead that blocking position. And I was genuinely impressed by what I saw from you because I was thinking to myself, I don't think I could keep this all together like Matt is right now. So, man, would you just describe what that was like when you're sitting there with Blackburn, in, the, the Blackburn problem and enemy fire and you got to secure the building, uh, your corner of the building. I mean, you got it all going on at one instant when I showed up and, and met you up there. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I, I tell you, you know, this is, uh, it, this was one of those, um, you never thought it could happen. I, I never thought something could, could go sideways so quickly, you know, that we, you know, just to back up to this point in the story, super six, seven, our helicopter is the last one, you know, out of the whole crew of 90 or fleet of 19 helicopters, you know, going in on, on the 
target this day. Well, on the objective, I shouldn't say the target, on the objective. So there's yeah. 18 helicopters, you know, in front of us and, and, you know, quite a bit of brownout that comes up. Um, and again, and the benefit now of looking back, um, sure. you know, to the, all of a sudden, you know, the pilot says, I, I can't, you know, when he said 30 seconds out, we're ready for 30 seconds. And then very abruptly, it comes to a halt and the pilot says, I can't see anything. And, you know, we wind up being inserted uh, short of our, or insert you know desired insertion point. Uh, yeah. The pilot, uh, very, I remember Sam Champs. He, he said, "Listen, Matt, when you get on the ground, go about three blocks in the direction of flight, and you'll be good." You're like Roger. I mean, I got it. That's cool. I, I, bearings know it. I can only get to use a compass. Just, just go. And you know, of course, we 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 have this this uh, litter urgent casualty. You know, right off the bat. I mean, you know, did Todd Blackburn. Um, grabs a rope, started to slide. There's a little bit of debate about exactly when he lost control, but yeah. somewhere between yeah. grabbing it and the bottom, he slid. And, you know, using that, if you look at that 60 Minutes tape, you can see him, you know, pitching through the air. Like, you could see that from the FLIR. Yeah. You know, it was a, almost yeah. 60 feet. You know, we were 20 feet higher than our insertion point. I mean, it's miraculous right. yeah. that he was alive. And to sort of land this uh, to the story, you know, in, in 20 seconds of being on the ground, we got a liturgian casualty or, or my RTO, uh, his radio doesn't work. Uh, it worked on the, you know, we did our, our comms check before we did. You of know, course. Three minutes ago. Worked yeah. mine, Murphy's Law. Um, you know, I've got I, I, no comms with him. We're in the wrong spot. Blackburn's hurt. And, and then we're in a firefight. We're taking fire. You know, from three directions, and and again, three directions. Yeah. Answer your question, Jeff, and uh, I hope everybody listened. For me, it was um, tremendously scary, and all that stuff, all the emotions that you would expect. But you know, you you really do just do it. Um, you just you, you just it, there. Some of it is muscle memory, and some of it is instinctive. And after sort of sorting myself out, I'm like, all right, I I, I know what to do as a problem solver, but. Uh, to to, to the, the credit to this success, because I had guy, I had two two young sergeants, uh, Jim Telsher and Casey Joyce, you know, and they were twenty somethings. They're like what? Oh 22, yeah, 23. man. Heck yeah. Um, and, yep. and they they were solid. They were those those two team leaders were doing everything that I expected them to do without me having to say one word during actual or you know during battle you know everything we always dreamed and thought and knew would happen i saw them do it and i'm like man if they're doing it i can all i gotta do is my job you know and that, again yeah. that's sort of condensing the story down but so when when when, when whatever you saw at that point was a, a a result of these two young team leaders and the guys on their team you know everybody but blackburn you know engaged yeah. in the enemy in a third 25 30 meter fight I mean, unbelievable. Yeah, it is unbelievable for anybody out there who's been in a fight, especially if you haven't been in a firefight in calm or I mean, in a densely packed uh, urban environment. Most of that fight is, you know, uh, literally across the street or, you know, just half a block down the street. Um, Matt, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this to you. Did you know that uh, Joyce came from my squad? He was one of my guys until he got promoted. And then our policy was to move people around so that they didn't have to lead their buddies. So he went to you. And I have always to this day had the greatest respect for James Joyce, but also for his wife, Deanna, and how she handled losing her husband. Um, and when I got the call that Joyce was gone over the radio, man, it was a punch in the gut. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and and amen to both of both both of that. You know, Deanna is uh, an amazing, um, amazing, amazing lady. Just an amazing woman. Always been the testament of 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 true courage. And um, you know, I saw yeah. her a couple of years ago. It was a random event in 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 Frisco, uh, Texas, and she was as lovely then as she was, you know, thirty years ago. Oh and, man, that's good yeah. to hear. It was it yeah. was it was a uh, you know a lot of tears together but uh she she was of doing course. really well and uh yeah anyway I, just you're you're right i mean again the quality of 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 person in that unit and you know casey joyce and, and jim telsher are again 23 years old making it happen without yeah. without missing yeah. 
Absolutely. Um, I just mentioned the phrase Murphy's Law. For the, You and I know exactly what that is. But for the people out there that are listening that have never heard this phrase before, Murphy's Law is universally applied in the military. And Murphy's Law is basically, if anything can go wrong in a firefight, it will go wrong. And in your case, it literally came true, Matt. Um, to quote the great tactician, Mike Tyson, he said, everybody has a fight. Everybody has a plan for the fight. And you go out into the fight with your plan until you get punched in the face. And then the plan goes out the window. And in your case, you get punched in the face literally before the whole team gets off of the helicopters. Yeah. No, it is. And, and again, I don't mean to be glib, you know, so coy about it, but that's it. That is exactly it. I mean, that that is it. And, you know, that if there's one lesson, Jeff, that, that I, I certainly try to pass on to future leaders. I'm like, you, you know, we, we got to make it tough. We need thinkers, you know, we got to be, we, yeah. we, it's a thinking man's gun club. And not that I'm a great thinker, but uh, I had some help getting through that, that predicament, but it, it's, it does, have, it's not just going to be one thing. It's going to be multiple things and it's going to come at you really quick. And uh, man, you know, the, the hesitation is, uh, Listen, I bombard everybody with cliches, but hesitation will 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 kill you. It will uh, kill as you. you know, it will kill you. You know, it's just yeah. uh, you gotta gotta make a gotta do it, and you gotta be prepared to do it on your own. You know, and um, I you just do or you don't. And if you don't, then you know it's it's curtains. I haven't heard that quote in years and years. My first, I had a guy that his first uh, combat tour ever was with me in the Ranger Regiment over in Iraq. And I reminded him when we were getting off the helicopters and going into Target for the first time, I reminded him, listen, war is a thinking man's op or a thinking man's uh, event. And the guy who can't think on his feet is going to end up with a bullet in his chest. So pay close attention to what you're doing and what's happening around you. Because it literally could be the difference between life and death. Absolutely. And, you know, in these things, Jeff, as you know, um, they're big clunky movements, you know, for each of these events that happen, at least my experience on the battlefield. And yet, you know, if you're listening or reading, you're like, oh, well, that shouldn't have been that hard to do. You know, it shouldn't have been that hard to evacuate a guy. I, went, I was gonna, yeah, it shouldn't be, but I anybody who was there would laugh out loud at that statement because of the myriad of problems and thousands of bad guys that we have to deal with. Absolutely. And, you know, that is one of those, uh, I heard sometime after that, you know, one of the intelligence agencies estimated something like, you know, 10,000 armed Somalis. 10,000, yep, 10,000. You know, you're like, what are the odds? Like, what are the odds that you and I um, would be having this conversation 30 years, you know, almost yeah. 30 years to the day later. I mean, it's, it's inexplicable in one sense, but it's totally understandable when you, you take to put this story all together with the caliber of, of, of warriors in that force. And this isn't trying to be a, the Ranger infomercial. Um, it's just, it right. isn't. it's just, it is what it is. And, uh, in concert, that's right. It is what it is. Big force. It was an amazing force. Yeah. I did a radio interview, an international radio broadcast, not long after the movie came out. And I had this arrogant, I have a better word for it, but I'm just not going to use it in this broadcast, reporter who basically said, how did you special operators, you army rangers, the best of the best, how did you guys get your butt kicked out there that bad? And I said, hold on just a second, dude. And then I told him the math. I was like, listen, best guess. At the low number, there's 200 of us on the city streets and about 10,000 armed Somalis. When you do that math, you're going to get the same results or much worse results every time. So don't talk to me about getting our butts kicked out there. Let me see you and 199 of your friends go to war against 10,000 people at point blank range and see how that turns out for you. Yeah, no, and it's and again, uh -huh. this is this is sort of the what do they call data-driven analytics? And, and, and you know, Jeff, yeah. I mean, I think it just, it just illustrates a couple of things. Um, again, if you can take you, not you, Jeff, but you just the listener. Listener, If yeah. you can take emotion out of the equation of review of this battle, um, you start with those numbers and, and you look at the casualties, and which are 
horrible. I mean, you can't justify one to a widow. Like, you, you know, try and do that. Right. It's, it's a horrible position to be in, as you know, to be that, you know, trying to explain to a spouse why her husband is dead. Like, it, it, to her, that's it. The, 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 the sort of so what I'm coming back to is war is really ugly. You know, really, really yeah. good, well-trained, exceptionally um, equipped, brilliant minds and everything. But the best of the best in the world, I think, can die at the hands of an inferior enemy in, in, in two seconds. Any day. Without Any doing day. anything wrong. Any day. You yeah. know, it's, it's right. the reality of combat. And, uh, you know, you throw that on top of it all and you think, man, that... Um, you know, like to have a chat with that reporter because it's like you, you really don't have any idea. Like you, you can't clearly you, yeah. you, you can't appreciate the complexity of of this battle, nor the circumstances of it. Uh, Kofor yeah. Black told me once um, that it was funny because he said it so absolutely matter of factly. It's like that, that. That was the hot gates. You were at Thermopylae. That's what you all did. That is a good analogy. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it was. And that. This is a guy who was, you know, you know, a, a director of the CIA or deputy director of the CIA, and um, uh, he knows a thing or two about this stuff. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I'm I'm sorry, I'm rambling. No, no, you're not. Actually, this is exactly why I wanted to have a conversation with you. I visited Dominic Pilla's family after we returned, and I had a I had to have a really honest conversation with his parents, Mr. and Mrs. Pila, with his sister Jim Pila. Um, and one of them, and I think it was his mother, his dad didn't ask this, but I think his mother asked like, what did my son do wrong? What did you do right? And it devastated me that oh. question because I had to say to them, basically what you just said, listen, the best guys on the planet don't do anything wrong. And they may not come out of this firefight alive. And the only reason that I walked away without a scratch and that your son didn't is because that there's a sovereign creator of the universe that decided who lives and who dies that day. And I didn't do anything right. And he didn't do anything wrong. It just is what it is. Yeah. And uh, no, that doesn't satisfy a family member who just lost somebody, but it's the truth. You and I know it to be true from the combat that we've been in. Yeah. Yeah. No, Jeff, listen, you, you, you're, you're, it's, yeah, I mean to say, Roger, that to all that you said, because um, it, it, it's a, it's an Im, it's an impossible task for any of us to to you know. There's not the logic, you know. There's not a secular logic you can use to say. Let me just tell you something that's going to make you feel better about the loss of your your son or daughter. Yeah, it, right. It, that's it, right. It cannot happen. Yeah. So there you are no words. Words back to your 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 thoughts about you know our faith and how how this all world works but it is um nonetheless a it, it's a challenge and it's hard and you know if 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 you're looking you know if people back to that commentary about how do you rangers and delta guys and seals you know get your your butts kicked it's like well I, I, you you tom matthew said this one year i heard him say he said people had americans have um an antiseptic view of warfare of war you know, Absolutely. and this is again, totally agree. you listen, obviously pre 9-11, eight years before 9-11, you know, nothing else was going on. I mean, Panama had been the last right. event two two years, right? Was, well, three years before. Yeah. Um, December 90, December 90 yeah, yeah. So or 89, I mean. So people, yeah, three years earlier. People just assume like, of course, you can go mop the, mop the floor with these people. I'm like, well, you know, not so fast, man. Uh, and I will, I will tell you, I, 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 I had that same attitude when I remember the Falklands going on. And I'm like, I, you know, oh yeah, uh -huh. how did that happen? You know, you guys, you know, run out of right. power. But, but, but it's a willing force that on their home turf that wants to fight. Um, it's formidable opponent. I'll, I'll back up what you and I are saying now, Matt. When people ask me about the book of the movie Black Hawk Down, I always always answer this. I don't have any idea why I'm in that book. I didn't do anything better 
than somebody else that deserves to be mentioned in the book, nor do the guys that didn't get mentioned in the book do anything different or worse. You and I know what happened that eventually led to the news articles, which led to the book, which became a massive motion picture. So let's talk about this interview that I, I don't know about you, but I didn't get asked. I was ordered to go report to the battalion conference room and go meet with this reporter from the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I told the battalion commander, I don't do interviews. I'm not going and giving this conversation or going and having this conversation. And he said, Jeff, you're not hearing me. I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, you will be there and you will be there at this time on this date. Yes, sir. I'll go be there. So Matt, you become a significantly featured in the book and the movie like me. Would you describe for people how this thing, how the, how the book and the movie ha uh, came out? How did this whole thing start? Yeah. Well, a similar experience. I remember walking up to, for PT, you know, whatever time it was and Captain Steele was standing on the front steps of the Bravo company, uh, you know, barracks and said, you know, be in the conference room at zero nine or something like that. You know, like Roger and uh, I honestly, Jeff, I didn't remember. I, I remember going up there, but I never remembered Mark Bowden. Like, I, you know, I went and did, did my thing, said, talked for however long and then left. And uh, that was it. That was, we're done. Um, and the funny thing is, I, I remember. So for all of you listening, this is weird because this is really just the advent of internet, you know, and people are just getting. Yeah, it's actually, it actually is. Yeah. You know, compute. I mean, I certainly didn't have one. I'm like, why would, why would you need a computer? Neither did I. Um, but the, uh, um, I, I remember, and this is, goes to the story. There was a, um, um, a books a million that opened in Columbus, Georgia. And at Books a Million, the only reason it's significant is that you could get newspapers from around the world. Like you know, there were like 50 different newspapers you get. I'm like, this is very cool. And anyway, I was living in an apartment in, in Columbus, and one Saturday morning in December, um, the there's a knock on my door, and my good friend Bobby Ray Toon um, from Alpha Company shows <laughs> All right. up, yeah. and he drops uh -huh. his newspaper on the floor. And I'm like, what, you know, odd thing to do for a knucklehead to bring a newspaper to somebody and drop it on the floor. And he's like, you know, everybody knows that you ripped the, the headset out of the helicopter. I'm like, what? And he's <laughs> like, sure enough, there was a front page article of the Philadelphia, In the Philadelphia Inquirer, Inquirer written by yep. Mark Bowden. And he was telling what was going to become this book, Black Hawk Down. And every day he would publish another chapter. Um, uh -huh. that's how this yep. thing really started. And he had this really, there was this thing called the internet and you could go on the internet and, and click on the webpage of the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I learned this all afterwards and uh -huh. kind of read and understand, and you could chat with him and all this stuff. And anyway, as the story goes, there was something like, you know, 250,000 hits on the website, it blew up the whole server, you know, like the, it shut did. down the Philadelphia Inquirer that day. But anyway, that Mark Bowden wrote this thing and, and lo and behold, it, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm not going to read it. I know how the story goes and didn't give it any yeah. more thought. Like I literally gave it no more thought, Jeff. And, um, you know, who, who, who knew that a couple of years later that I'm like, who, who is this guy Bowden? I don't even remember what he looks like. Yeah. Um, right? Not yeah. at all. And I, I think it came out in like 96, 95, 96-ish, somewhere. Yeah, that's right. Ninety. I think it was the summer of 97. Good, well, okay. actually. Maybe that was it. That's it. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it was 96, yeah. Somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, as everybody knows this story, it, it just went to the moon and back. I mean, yeah. this was the most amazing thing. Um, and I still, it was surreal to me just that this story, because again, using our good friend, Tom B. DeMasso, I remember as we were leaving Mogadishu him saying, you know, it's too bad that people will never know this story, you know, with That's all right. the yeah. TS and upsec stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, but I think, well, uh, I, anyway, go ahead. That was, that's my recollection of how the, the book came. I, you nailed it. Um, 
I, I for the listener out there, if you've ever heard this phrase, phrase tossed around, it's kind of tossed around in jest right now. But this in, in what Matt is describing is absolutely true. These news articles that were posted on the Philadelphia Inquirer literally broke the internet. The internet was so new and the response was so overwhelming. I mean, people from all over the world were tuning in to tomorrow's episode or tomorrow's um, brought or tomorrow's paper from the Philadelphia Inquirer on the internet because they couldn't wait to hear what happens to Matt Eversman or Jeff Struker next. And I want the listener to hear every single guy that was on the streets with us deserved the kind of attention that Matt and I got from Mark Bowden. Well, it's just because I did an interview. Uh, the only reason yeah. I'm in that book is because I did an interview and every guy on the streets deserves the kind of attention that that book and the movie gave us, Without but it, it started off as a, a news brought or a couple of news uh, episode or news, um, you know, stories. And then, man, it just took off like wildfire. Well, well you know, and the thing is, if, if, if Mark would, Bowden would tell you, you know, that um, nobody wanted to publish it. You know, nobody wanted to publish yeah. that thing. It, it got not, it got turned down by a bunch. I don't know the number and his agent, you know, whatever it was, Grove Atlantic or Atlantic, I don't recall, but, you know, basically faxed, faxed the, uh, you know, the synopsis, you know, sort of in a Hail Mary effort and, you know, boom, I mean, it, it went. <laughs> yeah. and it, it's, it's incredible. It, it is. And I think I, I would just tell you my two cents. I think if I can, you know, kind of take myself out of the equation uh, for one sense, though, it's a good book, you know, like that book. It's an He's, easy read. If you're not well. a military person, yeah. you can you can understand a very complicated battlefield without really having to do any research. Like you know, I thought once he nailed we, it. We were soldiers. Was a tough book. It was a great book, but you know, like I had to, I you know, I had to keep flipping back and forth, and you know, that 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 battle in I Trang was uh, it was a tough one to read. Uh, yeah. Down's really easy. I mean, you read it on a flight to yeah. cross country, you know. Um, there's two more things that I really need to do with you before you go. One, I, I, I don't want your career as a soldier to be limited to just one fight in Somalia. Matt, I think I've told you this before, and if I haven't, I'm sorry. I have for decades now, and I mean more than one decade, I have had guys that you led in the military or students that you taught that have come up to me and told me how much of an impact you personally made on them. And I hope that they're telling you how much of an impact you've made on them. But man, you have made a big impact on a lot of people that were in uniform or those ROTC students getting ready to get into uniform. And man, I just want to say uh, thank you for all that you've done for our country, not just this fight. Well, uh, Jeff, uh, you, you, you sort of just made my year. So thank you. Um, I won't start crying in front of you, but... I mean that, you know, that's the greatest compliment someone could give, you know, as you know, it has nothing to do with ribbons yeah. and all that other stuff. It, right. it, it's all, it, it is somebody saying thanks. And, uh, you know, you know this, when you see these, they say kids, you know, that there are Lieutenant colonels now and they're, they're getting ready to yeah. retire. You're like, <laughs> yeah, they are. Like, yep. Oh my goodness. How did that happen? But it's mind blowing, you know, right. But, but thank you for, for sharing. And, uh, I mean that, that is, um, that, that, that does the body good. And um, I'm very thankful to, for that. But, um, you know, good Lord has a good plan. And uh, it, it right. sort of works. It works that way, you know? You, Matt, you're also, the other thing, another thing that I want to say to you, you're aware of the um, flags of our fathers, those Marines that raised the flag at top of Mount Siribachi on Iwo Jima, and then when the news figured out who they are, their lives radically changed. And most of them didn't handle the pressure and the stress of the attention that came along with it. I've watched you handle the attention that went along with Black Hawk Down. And to be honest with you, man, not a whole lot of guys that I know would have handled the attention that came along with it like you have. And I'm proud of you. As a ranger, I'm proud of the way that you were depicted in the movie, but as a man and as a representative of our country, I'm proud of the way that you handled the attention that came along with the book and the movie. Well, again, Jeff, you're, you're, you're flattered me and you're very kind with those words. And 
I, uh, I got to tell you, it, 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 it's not, and this is going to sound very self-righteous, so please, you all listening, forgive me using this first-person pronoun, but, you know, uh, you, you want to be a good steward. You want to be a good mirror of, of, of that unit. And you know, whether we're yeah. talking about Bravo Company 375 or the Ranger Regiment or Task Force Ranger, like, you know, that's that's the person they're going to see and they're going to remember. And, uh, you, you know, you got to mind your P's and Q's and, and you got to be, you, you know, you got to try and, and put your best foot forward. And, and I think um, it's actually really easy because of all the things we've talked about for the last, you know, half hour yeah. because of the, these men and these brothers is this band of brothers to, to, to use that a little more. I mean, it's, it really was amazing. And whether people you kept up with for 30 years or not, I mean, you can bring it right down to that moment and you represent them. Yeah. Want to, want to do, do the right thing and be a good, just again, be a good steward. And uh, I, I, I've always, you know, I, I hope, I'm glad to hear you, you say that it, it does make me feel good. But I just hope that you would never want somebody to walk away and say like, man, what a, you know, not good guys. Yeah, those guys are jerks. Yeah. That guy is a you know, that guy's a butthead. How, how arrogant yeah. or how you know whatever. And, right. And that's um, got to make sure. You know, you got you. You just got to make sure that you don't uh, you don't um, bring discredit to the unit. That's right. That's what we would call you and I would call live in the Ranger Creed long after you're no longer not in the Ranger Regiment anymore. Yeah. Um, Kenny made this statement to me. Kenny Thomas made this statement to me one time. I've never forgot it. He said, Jeff, I owe it to the guys that are in Arlington National Cemetery to live a good life and to leave a good uh, legacy after I walk off stage because I'm representing those guys that don't have the ability to represent themselves. And I've always thought about Kenny's comments whenever I'm getting ready to walk on stage. He's absolutely right. Yeah. I yeah, owe it to the guys that are burying those national cemeteries. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of those, gosh, I wish I would have thought about that. You know, like that, that's a really great, great idea. And, and it's um, it, it's so true. And and I, I do believe, you know, that we, uh, you know, we're put here for a reason. And, uh, you know, you do yeah. the best you can. And everything you said before, you know, is true. There's a hundred and, you know, I always thought I use 150, but 100, 200, you know, there's 199 other people that um, yeah. could have, should have had, you know, Josh Hartnett playing them um, in a movie. I right. mean, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd to, to think it's, but, yeah. you know, that it just kind of happened that way. But we're, we're blessed and we're, we're blessed to be, you know, on that team that ranger team and part of that community let's be honest it's not bad to have a guy who's good looking like josh harnett uh attached to your name so that when people hear your name they're thinking they're uh they're they're automatically thinking about josh harnett yeah a lot of 15 year old girls were disappointed when they met me in person but, you know that's that's right he was I was like, well, he, he he was a good he was a good guy he he was he was um I, you know, the couple of times I met him, he, he, he really was, he was very respectful and, uh, you know, I, I had nothing bad to say about Josh Arden. Same thing. I would say the same thing about Brian Van Holt who played me in the movie, man, that guy approached this role exactly like I would want somebody to, I still didn't want to be in the movie. Don't want to be in the movie today, but if I was going to be in the movie, I would want a guy to approach the role just like Brian Van Holt. Right. Okay. So last time we were together, we're in, uh, New York together. We're on a panel discussion. And I didn't realize this at the time, but your book had just dropped, Walk in My Combat Boots. By the way, for the listeners, we're going to give away a free copy of Matt's book today to somebody listening. So you got to stay tuned to the end. But Matt, I'm thrilled. Man, I really am thrilled that you've put your story into paper. What was it that prompted you to write your first book before we get into the next two books? What yeah. prompted you to write A Walk in My Combat Boots? So this was, um, you know, sort of just a luck and opportunity around the corner. And, uh, you know, nine years ago, we moved to West Palm Beach, Florida, my wife, daughter, and, and I. And uh, I, about 20, gosh, probably end of 2017, I was introduced to James Patterson you know, the, who lives down here in Palm Beach. Holy smokes. Yeah. You, you, Literary you know, royalty. A mutual friend. 
And uh, we, um, this friend of our mind, he and I went to Afghanistan and, and shot this little, very short 25 minute documentary about battlefield medicine that got on the, the local PBS station. Anyway, uh, you know, Jim Patterson saw it and he liked what he saw it. He called me up and he said, Matt, you know, this is now in 2018. He's like, Matt, you know, these stories of soldiers on the battlefield, um, they need to be told. And he said, my father was a World War II veteran and he never talked about it. And we've been at war for, you know, 17, 18 years, respectively. And uh-huh. nobody's talking about it. He's like, nobody knows these stories. He's like, so why don't we do this? You know, you find them and talk to them. And he's like, they won't tell me, but they'll tell you. You know, the soldiers will talk to you. And, and, and then he's like, and we'll put this book together. And I'm like, you know, the best-selling author in the world says, you want to do a project? You tend to say, yes, I Hard to say no. no to that one. That's yep. what you do. And um, it literally was just like that. And so we, we went. I, I, I started interviewing soldiers and asked them for um, friends and, you know, on and on. And it just sort of spider web. And we tried to cover, you know, all the branches and, you know, privates to, to generals, the whole nine yards. And um, that book, Walk in My Combat Boots, came out. And I got to tell you, Jeff, it, it was, you know, I get the opportunity to to interview these these men and women firsthand. Yeah. Then I get to read what the transcripts. Then I get to work with Jim yeah. on figuring out what parts of the story. And then, you know, he works with magic. And then I get to read the rough draft. And then I get to see the final thing. So, like, all of these stories I get to see no less than you know, six times. And I would read, you know, all of them. I felt like I knew them all. And, and, and they would bring me, some of them would bring me to tears six times in a row because they're that magnificent. Yeah, and these are, yeah. these are the soldiers. These are, these are men and women in our neighborhoods, Jeff. And you, you know them well, because they're like, why would anybody want to talk to me? I didn't do anything. You know, I, I didn't, right. <laughs> I, right. I didn't do anything. I was just a female crew chief on a, you know, on a black hawk for Marines in Afghanistan. And, you know, just incredible feats of courage and and amazing story. So that that's how that 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 book came out, uh, and it was that well received. And uh, yeah, I was just that was I was delighted that they were they brought that up to West Point, and that there are some cadets now, well, young officers that have all of our signatures in it. So that's pretty cool. That quote is priceless. I was in Afghanistan. Um, sitting right next to a guy who I developed a, re- a friendship with. And I was talking to him and he was like, I don't know what the big deal is, Jeff. I'm just an Air Force fighter pilot. Why is anybody, why, why would, what would, what's a big deal about that? And I was, I literally laughed in his face. I said, do you have any idea how ridiculous that statement sounds to the average person? Now, sure, in the circle that we're in right now, a lot of people would just nod their head. But that statement is just ridiculous. I'm just the 1% of the 1% of the people on the planet that can fly an Air Force fighter jet in combat. What would anybody want to know about me for? Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, and that's across the board. It's across the board. It's, it's, it's amazing. So, uh, but we're proud of okay, that. Okay, so your first book does well. Well, you should be because it did well. And then ER Nurses comes out. And now I love it, man, because you're telling other people's stories and you're telling it really well. After ER Nurses, you guys just dropped Walk the Blue Line. Tell us about those two books and tell the listener what to expect if they pick up a copy of those. Yeah, boy, man, I put a quarter in me. I won't shut up. So ER Nurses, uh, again, Jim Patterson's (laughs) idea, he said, you know, you, you, you go to the ER on your worst day and you hope they're having a good one. And uh, that is exactly true. So I spent uh, a, a better part of COVID, um, which we had started before COVID happened, but it is nothing. It, it is this straight up the gut, no chaser stories from men and women that, that serve in, you know, the emergency rooms. And again, from, yeah. you know, from New York to LA, Seattle to, to Miami and everything in between. And uh, you All realize right. that yeah. these, these men and women, you, you know, and it, it's interesting on the heels of our a story about soldiers and combat deployments. And what jumped out at me on this one is that, you know, it's everything that you and I dealt with on the battlefield, generally speaking, without the being shot at. Although there are a couple of cases of nurses being engaged, you know, out, you know, getting somebody yeah, out of the, right. know, from a, 
uh, uh, um, off the the doggone ambulances. But these men and women are deployed from the time they say, you know, they're hired until the time they they leave. Like, it's trauma every day. The same thing with our our, our law enforcement officers. Like, they are deployed the entire career. There's no red, amber, green cycle. You know, there's no, this is just like zero or red line. Which one are you? You know, and and, and I loved it. And you realize these people, much much like our soldiers, it's in their DNA. They are selfless servants. They're courageous. They're dutiful. They're loyal. They're they're all the stuff of, if you rewound the last 50 minutes of our conversation, you could use all those adjectives um, to describe these men and women because they're, they're servants and they're servants in our communities. And I think that's kind of what really jumped out is like, man, nobody thinks about them until you're having a bad day. You know, neither one. Oh, yeah. you, you, yeah. you just don't. And you think, my goodness, I, I hope to the good Lord above that we, we, we got them on a good day and they're, they're doing the right thing and they're doing it well. And, uh, uh, you know, we've had enough nurses and cops. I'm sort of talking about both folks here that have said, you know what, that's, they nod their head and they're like, yeah, that's, what I'm reading is what it's like, you know, and everybody that's else exactly that reads it right. is, yeah. says, I had no idea. And that's, I think, the, yeah. the metric for success for these nonfiction books. I've been pointing out to my students, Matt, for the last 20 years, when surveyed, the number one profession that is most respected and most trusted in America every year, year after year, for 20 years now, is nurses. It's the number one on the list. And they deserve attention and their story deserves to be told. But like you, I tell friends, listen, what a privilege to learn, live in a country where if you dial three digits on your phone, 911, people will rush into a burning building. They will show up in the middle of a firefight and they don't even know you, but they will be there to help you. And we deserve to honor our first responders like Walk the Blue Line. We deserve to represent what those nurses, especially ER nurses give to help keep us, uh, to, you know, to take care of us. Absolutely. And listen, this is, and I, this is almost going to sound a little seditious, Jeff, you, you know, being soldiers, being veterans that we, we love and people always say, thank you for your service. And it's very, so kind, so thoughtful. And people thank you very much, but it's like, man, these, these, these nurses, thank you for your service. You know, we should be thanking Heck people, yeah. you know, yep. and our police officers. Totally. We should be, thank you for your yep. service. Firemen, all these servants of ours that, that that these noble professions that take care of us, we really it's a mystery to me why we're why we don't. And uh, anyone that would vilify any of these people deserves to be beaten anyway. But you're like these, I agree. these these men and women, um, my gosh, I'm a I'm a broken record, but it's just you hear them, they don't want, you know, they don't want awards, they don't want medals, they don't want be in the spotlight. They just want to go do their job. They're good stories. They're true stories. And, uh, you know, yeah. some are funny, some are sad, some are exciting. It's uh, um, it, it's a good one. And, and James Patterson knows how to tell a story. And uh, I would just of course people would read yeah. it. Yeah. Well, okay. On that note, we're going to bring this plane to a landing. How do people find these books? How do people find out more about you, Matt? Yeah. So I'm not a social media, you know, <laughs> Denison, so you, you kind of stuck you. with with LinkedIn um, for me. Uh, but the uh, the books, you go to any your hopefully go to your local bookstore first. Um, but Amazon, they'll, they'll they'll have them all out there. I think uh, um, I think Combat Boots is in paperback. Uh, ER Nurses is going to come out in paperback this fall. Um, but uh, What the Blue Line is is still in hard hardcover and. Uh, again, I think you'll find they're they're good reads, and um, uh, but they're 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 amazing stories of amazing people. Well, we're going to put links to all of your books and the notes to this broadcast to make it super easy if you're driving right now. Um, but Matt, I want to just say it one more time before I let you go. You have handled the attention well, and you've been a good steward, not just for the guys of Task Force Ranger, but for the U.S. military. And now for nurses and for first responders, thank you for the way that you continue to inspire people. You continue to inspire me, man. Well, thank you, my friend. You're a good ranger, buddy. God bless you for 
for all you have done because we should flip this screen around and have another hour and let me interview you because <laughs> uh, your name pops up. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of general officers now that used to be young lieutenants and captains uh, that, that speak very highly of, of Chaplain Struker. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's Sergeant Struker, sometimes it's Major Struker. Yeah. It doesn't matter when it was in your career. So thank you for, for that. And it does bounce right back at you, Jeff, for, for all you yeah, do well, and continue to do for, for so many. We're, thank you. we're blessed. Thanks for reminding me how old I am, man. Hey, I really appreciate you taking the time out to do this with me, man. It's great catching up with you. God bless. There are people that are tuned into this podcast from all over the world. But I want to say again what you just heard a moment ago from me and Matt. If you live in a country where you can pick up a phone and dial for help, and there's a nurse in the emergency room that is going to make every effort to give you the care that you need, you should go ahead and thank God tonight. If you live in the kind of place where you can dial a number and ask for help when your home is on fire or when you're in the middle of a really dangerous situation and the first responders like the law enforcement or fire uh, department shows up, you really, really need to go home and thank God tonight for living in a country where people like that exist. Would you just... Take a moment, if somebody like that is around you this week, in the military, in fire, uh, a firefighter, a, a police officer, even a nurse or a doctor, would you take a moment this week, look them in the eyes and say thank you. You may make their day. I wanna say thank you to the people that stay tuned in on this podcast, on every episode. If you just found us and you haven't already subscribed, why don't you just go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform or on YouTube. By the way, we also deliver content throughout the week on social media. We're on all of the social media channels and you can find us by just searching for at Unbeatable Podcast. You'll find some pretty amazing people there like our fan of the week this week, Lewis Marks. Lewis, thank you for being so engaged. Thank you for being so encouraging and so and so supportive on our podcast um, social media channels. But I also wanted to tell you that we deliver content to the most loyal of the listeners. These are the folks that are part of the Unbeatable Army. The Unbeatable Army is totally free. If you want to know, if you want to know more, if you want to join up. All you got to do is simply go over to unbeatablearmy.com. I'm going to say it one more time. Matt, thank you for being on this episode of Unbeatable with me. And to honor you and also to take good care of the listeners, today we're going to give away a digital copy of Matt's book to somebody who's part of the Unbeatable Army. You're going to get a free book just for being part of the free Unbeatable Army. That's free on top of free. I don't know how you can beat that. Hey, guys, before I let you go, let me remind you that next week, I'm going to bring you another story that I wish was in the book of the movie Black Hawk Down instead of my story. So tell your friends and tune back in next week, will you? See you next time.